I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief. You're listening to EE Times On Air. And this is your weekly briefing for the week ending October 23rd. In this episode, it is the 100th anniversary of the introduction of the word robot. I called up a friend of mine, science fiction author Mark Neiman Ross, for a freewheeling conversation about robots in fiction, robots in the real world, and where the two intersect. Also, EE Times has just published a book that we're rather proud of, called Sensors and Automotive. It's a handsome volume with up-to-the-minute information about the -the state-of-the-art in assisted driving and autonomous driving technology. It also covers where the automotive market has to take that technology next. Advanced driver assistance systems and autonomous vehicles are works in progress, and the technologies they rely on are constantly evolving. So where is the automotive industry, and where is it going? EE Times has compiled an anthology of up-to-the-minute essays, market analyses, and technical content to answer those questions. The book is called Sensors in Automotive. It examines whether advancements in sensing and decision-making technologies can help drivers, passengers, and vulnerable road users. And if so, how soon might this help arrive? Regular listeners all know my colleague, Junko Yoshida. Junko has led EE Times' coverage of automotive electronics, and she managed this book project. Normally, she's the one asking the questions, so she wasn't entirely prepared when the tables were turned. Okay, Junko, tell me why a book? Why a book? Um, that's a good question. You knew this question. You knew it was coming, though, right? Yeah, <laughs> I know. This was the first question, and I thought about thought about it myself. I thought, how dare would a publication like E. Times think about? writing a book, right? I thought it was sort of uh, above our calling. But at the same time, um, we realized this is a time to throw a marker down in the ADAS AV market uh, because the this is we're dealing with a very complicated issue with autonomy and uh, advanced uh, driver's assistance system. And this is something, the complicated topic merits a book rather than a mere series of online stories we've been writing about in the last uh, couple of years. Right. So that kind of points to what's in the book. So not only is it a collection of some of our reporting over the years, but it's also a lot of brand new contributions from some of the leading experts uh, in the field, talking about not only the technology, but the intersection of the technology and human perception and human operation of the technology, right? And safety, correct. And safety, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah but I, I would uh, characterize the book consists of three parts. The first part is the uh, market overview and uh, also the technology review the technology overview is something that uh, we actually collected the several leading thinkers of the AV and the technology industry. We asked those experts to uh, share their unbiased views 
of what they see as the current challenges are and what they would propose potential solutions um, without any marketing fluff. That was the, uh, the first part of the book. Second part of the book is, as you said, uh, we compiled uh, various stories we've written in the last 18 months across Aspen Core Media publications. So it includes E-Times, EDN, Embedded, and uh, electronics pro- e- e- electronic products, various publications mm-hmm. Aspen Core Media has. So that's the second part. The third part is what we call references section. This is where we collected the best tech pipe papers we could get a hold of that relates to the current issues of current and the future issues of ADAS and AV platforms. Right. So this isn't uh, just um, one big story or a slice of life out of a, a you know the last year and a half or two years. This is a reference work. Right. Yeah. The, yeah. I don't want to um, characterize that. Oh, this is a print, right? No, this is a book. The reason why a book is different from print publications we used to publish is that mm-hmm. book is something you go back and back again and again to reference. You know. You know. I think so and so wrote something that was interesting, and I want to go back there to see exactly how he framed the issue, right? And mm-hmm. uh, I was just telling you, I received actually a galley of this book a couple of weeks ago, and I myself using this galley to go back to, you know, <laughs> when I'm writing something, I go back to this book and say, oh, yes, you know, the, uh, uh, the so-and-so said this, and uh, I want to know how it goes back. I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a lot of use and longevity in books and it's it's well designed well written well copy edited and it's 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 re, it's really easy to read rather than uh, saying it's it's, a, it's certainly not a collection of press releases certainly not just a collection of stories this is a coherent book that you know asks asks hard questions all right so uh, how much time did you spend putting this book together Several months, but I really owe it to a lot of people that we know we consider as our kind of a brain trust. Um, but I think what really got us going in the very beginning was that I kind of really timidly asked the Secretary General of Euro NCAP, this is the European New Car Assessment Program, Michel van Rottingen, and I asked him via LinkedIn, do you think you can write a forward for this book? And he said he'd be he'd be glad to. He he said I'm honored. And I said, wow, you know that's like really. And then mm-hmm. I thought I was expecting like 300 words for the forward. No, he wrote a full length story for us. And wow. one thing left led to another. A whole bunch of really uh, the people you probably know, you know, including people like Agil uh, uh, Juliusen. Uh, who mm-hmm. writes uh, a Gill's Eye column for us, and Phil Magny, he is the um, VSI Lab founder. And then, of course, our dear uh, Colin Barnden, who writes seriously skeptical column for us. And um, there are guys like uh, certainly uh, Phil Copeman, he's a CTO of Edge Case Research and professor at Carnegie Mellon. 
um, you know, and the Rob Stead, who runs the uh, AutoSense conference, and Mike Demler, uh, he's a senior analyst at Lindy Group. I'm sure I'm missing somebody here, but well, so it's yeah. an impressive lineup. I mean, like you know, I've been. <laughs> I've been reading your coverage uh, of the of the uh, ADAS and and AV uh, market. Um, these folks aren't just um, they're not just commentators; they're participants. Right, right. They, that's what yeah. that's what's really amazing about the people who've contributed. These are these are people who are aren't just saying, oh, this is what I think of this. These are the people who are involved in standards development um, uh, and thinking about where the market should go, what the technology should do, how safe a car can be, that sort of thing, right? Right. And they are, they, yeah, literally, they, they, they are uh, involved in the industry in terms of leading uh, industry standards group. Or that working with the clients who are developing new systems. Yeah, they're, they're, these are really hands-on people. They're not just in you know, ivory tower thinking about this. No, they actually see on the ground what's going on. So are you going to send me a signed copy? Yeah, if you're nice to me. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, we'll have to think about that then. All right, thank you so much, Junko. You're welcome. Sensors and Automotive is available now. There's a link on this podcast episode's webpage. If you're not already there, you can find it by going to our homepage at www.eetimes.com and click the button on the nav bar that says Store. Also, if you'd like to hear about some of the latest developments on assisted driving technology, I'd like to refer you to the October 9th episode of this podcast, when our guest was Jack Wiest, Vice President at Intel's Mobileye Operation. There's a link to that on the podcast episode webpage as well. You know, when you think about it, one way of looking at autonomous vehicles is that they are robots that people can ride in. The popular notion of a robot is something that resembles a human. That's a conceptualization that comes directly from popular art. The very first mention of a robot was made 100 years ago in 1920, when Czechoslovakian author Karl Čapek coined the term in his play Rossum's Universal Robots. The play, now better known as R.U.R., was first produced in 1921. The word robot was a derivation of the word for slave, and indeed, the robots in RUR were used essentially as cheap labor. Rossum's robots are flesh-and-blood creatures, barely distinguishable from humans. In fact, if you've seen the recent HBO presentation of Westworld, you'll recognize a lot of themes and situations were already there in RUR 100 years ago. Meanwhile, in the real world, Robots of different shapes and sizes are ubiquitous in factories, and millions of people have robot vacuum cleaners shaped like big fat discs ceaselessly careening off the walls in their homes. There are few other areas where the fictional and the real world inform each other so fully as they do in robotics. That's an idea I wanted to explore with a friend of mine. 
Mark Neiman Ross has worked with both hardware and software and recently has been offering training in Raspberry Pi. He's also a published science fiction writer who's written stories that I felt were germane to the subject. So, in celebration of the 100th anniversary of the coinage of the word robot, I called him up to talk about robots, written and real. We started at the beginning with RUR. It's been 100 years. Have you even read the read the play, let alone seen it? Uh, I I have seen it, and I believe I've read it. You've now, seen it. Oh. you know, it was such a long time ago that I saw or read it or something. It was um, uh, actually, if you look up online, you can see stills from I think one of the original um plays. Yeah. Uh, and I I probably you know I'd, I this may be something that I'm um. I'm fabricating in my mind, but I remember it, you know, from way, way back. It's one of those things that my dad introduced me to for some reason. Uh, oh, how funny. Yeah. yeah. He, well, he, you know, um, he, he filled my head with all sorts of science fiction stuff. He was really big on, um, you know, Asimov and that kind of stuff. And I remember going out in the garage and he had all these science fiction pulp novels and I still have a few of them. You know, they're, uh, yeah, they're, they're like, uh, God, they must be, they're close to 60, 70 years old at this point. Um, oh. But yeah, I think yeah. that was in there someplace. Yeah, so somewhere along the line, I actually read the play. Yeah, and uh, you know, it's uh, it's mannered. Uh, it probably wouldn't. I can. I can. I think I can understand why it isn't presented live too often. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's of the style at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but. But the fact that they, you know, the, the, the basic concept, I mean, and it's not like it's totally brand new, uh, but, but the idea of, of a robot, a mechanical servant, um, that really kind of fixed it in, uh, in probably the, the modern cultural imagination. Yeah. Um, and then all that science fiction that your dad probably bought, and so did we when we were kids, uh, man, robots galore, right? Oh, well, I robot and yeah, I mean, I got, you know, I have a book someplace called Robbie the Robot and you know, they Is all, it well, is it sort of like a a fan a fan book about the 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 Robbie the Robot from Lost in Space? No. Or is it like this a novelization was, or? Um, do you remember the like the Scholastic Book Club? Yeah. Yeah, right. So this was one that came through the Scholastic Book Club. And it was this, you know, story, or maybe, no, 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 it wasn't Robbie the Robot, it was called The Runaway Robot. Oh, okay. And, it, you know, it was this story about how this robot, it's a very anthropomorphic robot, gets on a spaceship, and he goes off and has an adventure and all this kind of stuff. And um, I remember, the one thing I remember from that is that um, this robot's batteries are going mm -hmm. low. And so there's this whole um, complex story about how the batter, or how the robot manages to change its own batteries. Oh, that's actually kind. Of, it's actually kind of forward thinking. I well, mean, you know, you actually somebody actually thinking about the ramifications of what it's like to actually have a robot in the real world. Right, right. Got to have batteries. Got to have gears. Um, you know, and, and maybe even the first time that I, that everyone ever considered robots being mortal. You know, oh, interesting. Right, what, right. You know, what does the death of a robot look like? And this robot is scared. And, well, again, anthropomorphic. Um, yeah. But it's like, how am I going to do this? How do I do? And it figures it all out all by itself. It goes into a washroom and somehow uh, into a toilet. <laughs> it puts itself into a toilet stall in some spaceport and then opens up its front cavity and then reaches in and, you know, manages to 
jumper the cables because they, you know, it's like this. I'd have to go back and <laughs> exactly. It's excellent though. I mean, yeah. that, that's that's the fun of it. That that there's a strain of science fiction where where people take a look at the actual technology and try to figure out how it would work in real life. Uh, well, iRobot was really wicked cool. Yeah. And of course it established the three laws of robotics. Um, but uh, oddly enough, you know, Asimov, for as scientific as he was, had more interest in the interaction of robots and people than he did on how the robots actually worked. Well, I think that's the basic core behind science fiction is is the technology is just, just there to explore the human interaction. Because mm-hmm. quite honestly, you and I don't relate to machines all that well. True. You know, we, we believe that they are there to serve us and we are willing to believe that there are no consequences to getting them to serve us. Uh, you know, we're starting well, to get into the philosophy here, but yeah. Well, this is this is um, this is uh, a great entree. I was looking for an excuse to mention uh, one of your most recent uh, uh, works. Um, your refrigerator, yeah, is yeah. is exact an example of that. You you begin to actually your refrigerator is the centerpiece, uh, or it's one of the characters. In a uh, in a basically a crime procedural, and you begin to actually sympathize with your refrigerator. That must have been kind of fun to try to put yourself in that headspace. Yeah, this. Um, so you're talking about stupid machine, and mm-hmm. the I mean the catch lines. It's a murder mystery solved by refrigerator. Yeah. And the the problem. I mean the really hard problem I had with that was relating to a machine that is not anthropomorphic. And, you know, how do you put, how, how do you, how do you get your head into the space of how a machine thinks? And then, mm-hmm. and then you have to write it so you, a reader will find it engaging. And I, you know, I just broke my mind trying to, you know, figure out how do you voice a refrigerator <laughs> in fiction without, um, you know, again, without anthropomorphizing the damn thing and giving it emotions and human motivations, uh, yeah. You know, and what I'm giving it's motivate. It still has motivations. It has motivations. Yeah. Um, yeah. And in this case, it, it's been told that it is supposed to restock itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it has ordered orange juice, but the orange juice never shows up. So it's motivation through the entire story is to try to figure out why this, you know, why this product has not shown up. Well, that leads it into having to solve a mystery with these, you know, fleshy, meaty human things <laughs> on the outside. But if that's what I have to do to get the orange juice, then okay, fine. That's what I'll do. Yeah, um, it was it was a great read. I, I had oh, a, good. I had a great time with it. Um, that's sort of a that that kind of shows the the uh, transition from the the robots that we have in our imagination that you know a hundred years worth of fictional robots whether it's Robbie the robot or um, you know Wally the, the, C3PO right uh, you know the androids from Westworld right. the movie and Westworld the TV series and, right yeah yeah uh, do you remember it, um, Silent Running oh Huey Dewey and Louie Right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, Bruce Dern was in that and and how they, you know, they started off, the the cool thing about Silent Running was they started off with robots that weren't necessarily, you know, big, tall, walking people 
made out of right. metal. They had these little squat little things. Yeah. But but they really did finally give them little personalities and they would talk back and forth. And the final scene is, of course, of whichever one of them survives, he's out looking, you know, tending the garden and looking at the stars. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's so, you know, it's so romantic, but... Um, you know, that was an interesting story anyhow. So uh, because of because of how they chose to make robots such a central part of the story. Yeah, yeah. It, it also goes to, we, we anthropomorphize our robots in fiction. Um, we were talking to Ayanna um, um, Howard from, uh, um, from uh, Georgia Tech hmm. uh, a couple of episodes back. And uh, she's does a lot of research into how people respond to robots, not just, you know, not just from the human machine interface point of view, but how people emotionally respond to robots. And it's really quite fascinating that whether the robot is anthropomorphic or anthropomorphized, Mm -hmm. we still almost respond to them as if they were people characters whatever oh, we we totally emotionally invest into them you know you think yeah. back on the what was it the tamaguchi things that kids had yeah and, and god forbid you take it away from the kid because it would die and right 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 <laughs> it's like yeah or people like you know with with like you know ibos were the the sony dog robots um people yeah. actually they were actually kind of like emotional support oh sure yeah. animals yeah, yep. and and people responded to, the, to them as such it's really quite fascinating it, well i mean it's all i can do not to glue googly eyes on my roomba you know just so i'm a little more comfortable about this thing running around my house without my supervision uh, so is a roomba technically a robot oh uh, how, how do you define ro- how do you define robot so um i i stick with the classic um, definition, which is a robot is something that has sensors and can make a change in its environment somehow, mm. okay. you know, which, which means that um, like a computer, the, you know, the desktop computer that we're looking at doesn't mm. really, I mean, okay, maybe it does, but it doesn't really have sensors and it certainly can't interact in the physical world unless you drop it on your foot, um, you know, versus, and, and I'll, I'll go on a limb here, something like a dishwasher. And that mm. dishwasher, as I recently found out, has sensors that tell it how much water is in it. And right. then it can definitely interact with, you know, it washes dishes. It makes dishes clean. So I would advance the idea that a dishwasher is a robot. Interesting. Okay. I, I think I would agree with that. Um, I'm not sure how much I would anthropomorphize my dishwasher but then i also have to acknowledge that you know i've named some of my cars yeah yeah, right right yeah well do this glue a pair of googly eyes on your dishwasher (laughs) and and again maybe my feelings would change it well see how long it takes you to name your dishwasher right (laughs) (laughs) so what is the i mean so you've read a lot of science fiction and, you know, watched science fiction shows. So have I. And I think a lot of people have, and we all have notions of what robots could be and should be. And now we're beginning to see robots appearing in the real world 
And it, uh, the question is, uh, you know, will the way we respond to robots or the way we expect to to respond to robots, is that going to evolve? Are we going to, you know, have a, are we going to change our idea of robots? You know, there's the Roomba going around the room and maybe, you know, we'll notice if the cat's riding on top of it. Well, and, yeah. Right. Um, but, you know, you look at uh, oh, the Boston Dynamics dog robot. Oh, and yeah. And you can almost imagine interacting with that kind of thing, you know? Well, they're, I mean, they're designing that thing to be interacted with. Yeah. And 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 part of it is is that they've designed, you know, both Atlas and Big Dog as being um adapted to human spaces. So, mm-hmm. you know, both of them can climb stairs and both of them can bend over and pick things up and Big Dog has a, a, a an articulated head with a clamper that can open doors and stuff because it's going to deal with doors, which are a very human sort of a concept. Nice. Um you know, how will we interact with them? You know, again, we, I, we, I, I certainly tend to attach personalities to everything around me because it makes it easier for me to relate to that thing. And I'm, you know, I'm a squishy human being. I, that's just my nature. I want to interact with all the things around me. Um, now, I guess that's the, that should be a problem unless, Mark, are they interacting back? Well, that depends on the, the <laughs> that depends your, on the is intent. Your to- is your toaster really talking to you? <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, see, this is where my psychologist comes in, right? You know, it's like, I don't know. Um, is the, so yeah, does the toaster talk back to me? You know what? In a little toaster fashion, my toaster does talk back to me. Uh, That's true. Yeah. You know, it's, it has a little ding, peep. You're, you're right, dings, yeah. yeah. And to be honest, I mean, my toaster dinging at me, dude, I can tell the toast is up. You know, I'm just watching. <laughs> I don't need you to do that. And I don't need you to send me a text message to tell me that the toast is up. And yet there are toasters that'll do that. Um, but, you know, if you're going to send me a text message that my toast is up, I want you to be polite about it. So, <laughs> right. you know, just because I am who I am. Well, that's kind of, yeah, that's kind of interesting. I mean, we we program the re. I mean, people program those reactions. Oh yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So it's it's again, it's somebody trying to figure out and expect how people will respond to whatever it is their their robot is doing. It it. I mean, part of it is marketing, right? You know, my toaster yeah. sending me a text message. That's some marketing guy. Yeah. But if you're designing a robot that, um, you know, let's say you're talking about a law enforcement robot, mm-hmm. um, you know, the behaviors that you're going to program into that thing are now pretty essential because hopefully part of law enforcement is, is that you are reducing conflict in all of these meat sacks running around. Mm. And you want, you know, you can do that with a soothing voice and a non-offensive posture and, you know, all the things that you and I recognize, um, you know, I mean, even a face. Is this mm-hmm. face that I'm looking at angry or is it comforting or is it happy or, you know, all of those things versus, you know, two red circles in right. a blank face? That How am I going to react to that, you know? So. Right. This, yeah, there's the sort of like the, the Cylon from Battlestar Galactica yep. versus... Um, 
actually, I'm thinking of the video game. Um, the Fallout video games uh, have uh, certain robots with TV screens on their heads. Sure. And yep. they they have like, you know, visual, you know, actual human characteristics or, you know, a human face on this robot that smiles and waves and says, howdy, partner. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Well, I mean, that and that's a really easy way to, to anthropomorphize a robot yeah. and be able to communicate with humans. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, our, a lot of our communication is nonverbal. So if a robot has to communicate with a person, it has to mimic some of those behaviors. Right. Uh, you know, how is it, how the, there's a real interesting question that came out. How would a robot communicate with someone who's autistic, who's on the, the spectrum, oh. who doesn't have the skills to recognize facial expressions, for example? So if you want a robot to comfort someone who's autistic, what tools do you have to communicate with that person? I don't have the That's answer. That's fascinating. Yeah. I do, but I think things like that are in fact being investigated. I know they are. Um, I have one of my friends is autistic. Um, he's the son of, uh, you know, somebody that, uh, a musician that I play with and, um, he's become, uh, v- he's really far down on the, the, the spec far down enough on the spectrum that interaction is difficult. Hmm. And, um, he interacts really well, uh, with great facility, um, with, um, with an iPad. Mm-hmm. Sure. You know, uh, and it may not be a robot, but clearly there's, there's something technological, you know, the, the technological interface, um, you know, comforts, like, uh, I don't know what his actual response is, but he appears comforted and calmed when he interacts yeah. with, with the technology. And I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm personally completely unqualified to speculate as to why that would be, but I can believe it, you know? Yeah, right, right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, and, and one of the things we're, we're talking about anthropomorphic robots at some point you, um, anthropomorphic robots are out there because they have to interact with a human world. Mm-hmm. But what happens when you remove the human world and just have a task? Uh, so for example, um, if you have a, an, an autonomous car, Right now, there's all sorts of stuff that you have to dial into an autonomous car to keep it from running into humans because mm-hmm. they, you know, human, messy. They just walk around and they're totally unpredictable and nobody knows what the hell they're going to do next. But if you put an autonomous car with a bunch of other autonomous cars on a closed freeway, mm-hmm. now you don't need to worry about some bozo walking across the street. And all you need to worry about is all of the other predictable cars that you can communicate with in a machine sort of code. Mm-hmm. You know, so if you're, if you remove the fetters of human interaction, what does that computer start to, or what does that robot start to look like? Oh, yeah. Hypothetical question. Well, you know, you, you can imagine, uh, you can, ma- you can imagine more sophisticated space probes. Oh, sure. Yeah. You know, with, with, with some level of autonomy instead of like, you know, getting a downloaded instruction from, you know, Houston or Florida or something. 
Yeah, I mean, all of the space probes that we send out right now have a certain level of autonomy. They have to, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Um, And they don't have arms. Uh, They have, you know, optical sensors and stuff. So they've definitely been designed for a specific task that doesn't involve having to worry about, you know, some meat bag stuffing their fingers in. Uh, Yeah. So do we have to... What do you think about the notion that... um, robots with autonomy might become dangerous. Well, uh, so I, you know, I, I wrote a note here that says armed robots don't kill people. Poorly designed algorithms kill people. <laughs> and true. Well, yeah, true. It's like, but yeah, yeah, well, that, that's the interesting thing. I mean, there's, there's, uh, there's research. Um, I would have to go and find it, uh, find where it was, was conducted in the, the specifics, but, um, uh, somebody had trained a simulation and each of the simulated elements within this simulation, uh, could, uh, had to figure out a way to, you know, just behave with regard to each other. Mm-hmm. And it quickly descended into, uh, <laughs> basically hostility between yeah they 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 self-created hostility between the the elements within this this enclosed computerized system there there's the google chatbot that started to become racist oh right 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 yeah yeah and they finally shut it down um and that that was a i mean that actually you know flows into this that thing became racist because it's the the learning set that it was given which was a bunch of people on twitter um mm. they just they just fed it a bunch of racist stuff and it <laughs> that's what it learned you know it's it's exactly like i think westworld makes an excellent point on that is that mm-hmm. those robots all they've been um presented with is violence mm. and in the end that's what they learn they think this right. is a norm um you know and and you know, getting back to the original point, should we be afraid of robots that are armed? Uh, I well, I think in general it's a bad idea to give a robot a lethal weapon. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and a, a, I mean, a, a robot with a sense of autonomy, a lethal weapon. I just, it's like there's it a lot seem... of nuances. Um, well, here's a. I mean, well, we go back to fiction again. Mm-hmm. Um, did you ever read with folded hands, Jack mm-hmm. Williamson? Not that one. I haven't read. So uh, basically, um, the uh, the robots get essentially the the Asimovian three three commandments. Okay, right, and they're like, we don't want you to do that anymore because it's dangerous and you might hurt yourself. So we're going to take that away from you. Oh, and we right. don't want you to right. do this anymore because it's dangerous and we're going to take that away from you. And they just keep taking things away and people, it, people, it, it's, it's chilling. Yeah. Well, um, it, and then it, in the follow up, interestingly enough, they start taking away war machines and the hero of the novel as such, and this is really sly on Williamson's part, the hero of the novel on such is like, give me back my bombs just in case I need them. And you know, the, the, the guy he's in conflict with philosophically is sort of like, no, seriously, you don't need those. Yeah. 
Yeah. Right? So so there's like this weird arc in 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 this fictional thing, and you kind of wonder, you know, well, if you do give, yeah, can there be unintended consequences of even what we might think of as benign programming? Yeah. This, I mean, this gets into the the, the whole concept of um, you know robot as benevolent overlord. Um, mm. You know, which which was what what, what was it? Skynet was supposed to be, and then it turned you know, turned into the term. <laughs> Whoops, that one didn't Oops. work out. Um, you know, but we we are talking about um, the the what kind of programming do you put into this thing? What's your intended goal? And then you try to translate that into a an it's an alien being. You know, computers mm. and machines and robots don't think like we do. They right. We've, we've even if we try to make them think like we do, they don't. They still don't. They can mimic. They can mimic you and I, mm-hmm. maybe really, really well. But in the end, they're, um, you know, if any any brain research that you look at, how the brain makes a decision is this kind of a wishy washy sort of a randomized walk. Mm-hmm. And right now, at least the computers that we have, not not to say that things won't change, but the computers that we have right now are very directed, very binary, you know, mm-hmm. and, and that's not, I mean, is we don't think in yes and no. We, th- right. we think like, yeah, you know, <laughs> this could work, you know? Yeah. 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 Um, you know, and, and, you know, it's, it's, you know, again, commander data being confused about the whole, um, you know, human state of things. And why would you take a risk like that when you don't know the the statistics of the risk that you're taking? It's like, eh, you know, William Riker gets up there and goes, hey, hey watch this. Hold my beer. <laughs> Hold my beer. <laughs> right? <laughs> so, yeah. You know, you, you mentioned, um, you know, should we be afraid of robots? And, and we, we jumped right to the Terminators. But there is also the whole economics of should we be concerned about robots? Yeah. And, it's true. You know, I mean, we've been through this before with the Luddites and, and the, um, well, you know, a lot of smart people in Silicon Valley are and elsewhere are, are thinking, you know, we know that, uh, we know that, uh, we've said, oh, more automation could be bad in the past, but this time, we, you know, I mean, there's, there are so many endeavors that could be automated and are being um you're probably familiar with um uh the ability of uh, one system uh to uh make predictions on on um they're they're almost as good and sometimes better as some oncologists in reading hmm. um reading uh, uh x-rays and, and yeah. detecting cancer yep um you know, there there are so many things that that could be automated that you know we assume should be a human thing, but doesn't necessarily have to be. I yeah, and I I mean I've read that stuff, and you know we're we're rapidly slipping into a <clears throat> an area where we are looking at being assisted by artificial mm-hmm. intelligence, and that, that I mean what you're talking about here is. Artificial diagnosis, artificial intelligence diagnosis is in the medical field, and we would like to believe that our, you know, again, our squishy meat space is our primary domain. But you know, in the case of oncology, 
a lot of it right now is just imagery that we're interpreting. True. And, you know, I there may be um, a line of no return or, you know, beyond here lie dragons. I'm not sure we've reached it, and I'm not sure we'll know when we've crossed it. Mm. Uh, you yeah. know, it, when when is too much automation... N- so here's a, for instance, you and I remember when the Macintosh turned into a, a typesetting machine. Mm-hmm. And before that time was hot lead, you know, and cold type and all that kind of stuff. And we paid people a lot of money to be typesetters and they knew about kerning and all of the fine craft of, you know, setting type and how you yeah. know beautiful type could be and why, why the word wave is such a difficult word in typography, you know, capital right. W A capital V. Um, and then the Macintosh came out and that all went away. There are no more typesetters as a it, typesetting is not a profession anymore. Right. You know, um, now a lot of people went out of business. On the other hand, a lot more people can set type. So is that technology an advantage or did it just, reduce the human situation, the human condition. Yeah. You know, I, I tend to, I used to be a typesetter. I'm kind of glad I don't have to do that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I guess, um, I guess the issue isn't so much any, any particular endeavor. I think it's the, the potential for how many endeavors all at once could be automated in a very short amount of time and giving people not enough time to adjust to whatever. Oh, well, and there might not, and there might not be, and there might not be anything to adjust to if there are that many endeavors being automated. That, well, that, that's an excellent point. Um, and, and when you put it into the context of, are we giving people a chance to adjust to the change? Mm. Uh, that becomes a real, I mean, that becomes a really real thing. Um, speaking in the time of, you know, COVID, everything changed in the space of weeks, yeah. possibly even days. And mm-hmm. our lives have totally turned around. Things have changed. Jobs have disappeared. Uh, and the marketplace is trying to adjust to that change. It's not doing a really good job of it. No, it's, it's, it's amazing how quickly change this, if nothing else, this has taught us how quickly things can change and how difficult it is to, to respond. Yeah. 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 Um, I, I mean, so I what think, do you think that, about, hmm, go ahead. Let me, let me, let me switch gears yeah, again. Sure. Yeah. What do you think about the prospect of, um, cyborgs, half humans, half robots? Well, we're already there. Yep, exactly. I mean, you wear glasses, right? Yeah, that's true too. Okay, so it's, I mean, I wear glasses and I have fillings in my teeth uh, mm-hmm. and I use, oh my God, if I have to drive someplace and I don't turn on GPS, I am lost immediately, you know, one block from my house. Now, is that, um, you know, is that the cyborg of science fiction where all that stuff is implanted inside my, you know, my head? And mm-hmm. I'm physically, you know, recharging an internal battery. No, not yet. But I am relying on devices 
to not for the average person, but there are people out there who have pacemakers with little tiny batteries that do energy harvesting. Sure. Yep. Right. For example, um, there's, and and we're going to get more and more used to it. Uh, it's, you know, it's only a matter of time before we have tattoos that are electrical. Well, we have tattoos. They're electrically conductive. Wow. Where did I hear that before? I do (laughs) want to mention, (laughs) since I've got you here, that's another story you wrote, wasn't it? That, well, yeah, that was, um, that was a story called Phantom Sense. Yeah. Um, and, and that, well, that, that's actually a really interesting point. This is about a character that had, um, electric or he had a, an antenna tattooed mm-hmm. onto his back mm-hmm. that he could then, um, control small insects with implanted cyborg, um, you know, chips and controllers and use those insects as, um, an extension Drone of his insects, five senses. Right. Yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. So in a sense, it was a, um, human insect, cyborg system that had been created to give this guy extra sensory perception, essentially. So Um, these are the tattoos you were referring to a moment ago. Sorry for interrupting and patting you on the back. Oh yeah. Thanks. Well, I appreciate the pitch, you know, (laughs) (laughs) shameless pitch, right? Um, But I mean, and in that story, I didn't go as far as saying that those tattoos would be computers. Mm -hmm. They were just antennas, but there's no reason that we, um, won't at some point be able to print a, a circuit mm-hmm. on skin using conductive ink. Mm-hmm. So um, would you, I mean, so Brian, would you be willing to for, you know, if your insurance covered it, would you be willing to have a, um, a directional uh, augmentation implanted on your right shoulder that if you turned north, it would reward you with a little dose of endorphin. <laughs> now you're never lost, right? Uh, yeah, I might go for a more fun drug, but um, well, maybe, yeah. I don't know. I really, I, I, I honestly don't know. Yeah, but just think if you're, if you're, um, and maybe, you know, maybe it's, um, well, who knows what the reward for turning north is, but now you're camping and mm-hmm. I don't need a compass anymore. That's right. Uh, you know, I, I am, I always, now I always do know where North is located. And if I can get that as part of my insurance, because the insurance says, you know what, if you, if you do put this in, there's a better chance that you will survive your camping trips. So your insurance rate will go down. Uh, you know, and I'm winging it here, but that's definitely a cybernetic enhancement. I, I don't, I don't think that's. Uh, you know, you say you're winging it, but, uh, you know, we're, we're, there are already insurance companies are already taking a look at, uh, you know, will you let us have access to your automobiles sensors so that we can see how good of a driver you are oh, and yeah. reward you for good driving behavior? Yep. Um, that's, you know, it's semi external, but, you know, it's a short hop, skip and a jump to an implant. Oh, sure. And there's also, I mean, once we're, you know, once we start walking down this path, would you be willing to get cheaper health care if my, if your health care company could monitor your digestive tract? You know, are you, you eating good? You know, I know it sounds. I, see, that's a new idea for me and maybe I wouldn't go for it, but you know, would my kids, you know, well, I don't know. But you're spending, you know, let's say you're spending a thousand dollars a month on health and on health care. 
which you probably are. Mm-hmm. And I'm your healthcare insurance guy. And I says, hey, Brian, um, it's a painless procedure. It'll take five minutes for everyone in your family. And we will drop your insurance rate by half. What do you say? It's pretty darn tempting, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> you know? And yeah, now all of a sudden, you know, now you're broadcasting your um, really personal data. We can go from there. On the other hand, um, well, you know, talking about Terminal Man, Michael Crichton's Terminal Man, where there's a guy, do you remember that story? Uh, you know, uh, one I haven't read, go. Okay, so in Terminal Man, um, the, not the protagonist, the, um, the, the guy that we're talking about accepts mm. a small computer in his head. He's got, he's got epilepsy. And the computer, anytime it senses that he's going to go into an epileptic fit, it um, it basically shocks him. And mm. it turns out later on that, in fact, this computer is also um, dosing his pleasure centers uh-huh. as part of that. So what this um, terminal man eventually does, and I'm giving away the plot here, is he starts to put himself in situations that trigger epileptic encounters so that he can get that that pleasurable shock. Well, unfortunately, the situations that he puts himself into are things like murdering people. So he gets into okay. it. Yeah, it's, it's fiction. You got you to yeah. have a murder someplace, right? Right. But in that case, we've got a situation where an epileptic person has accepted a, a device. Um, you know, it's like a pacemaker, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but it gets a little bit, you know, I mean, a pacemaker shocks your heart. Well, how do you feel about a small pacemaker shocking your, you know, optical center right. or, you know, um, hmm. uh, I, you know, we don't, we don't know the answer yet. Yeah. I, I remember talking to, um, the, the, the chief scientist, uh, at Microsoft for many years, years ago, uh, Nathan Mirvold. Yeah. Um, I got, uh, I was talking to him one time and like, did you really mean it? And, and he's like, yes, I absolutely meant it. If I could download my brain into a robot, I would do it in a second. Oh, now, okay. So there's an interesting topic. The, yeah. um, you know, I mean now, so let, let, you know, let's talk for a minute about brain in a box. Right. And <clears throat> duplicating your personality into a robot. And I don't know if you've been following the research, but what they're finding out is, is that your gut influences your emotions and your right your, that's such a that is such it's i mean it's been the research has been around for five seven years and it still kind of surprises me yeah yeah well you think about it i mean when you've got a cold or a fever mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't know about you but i'm i'm slightly irritable you know when, when i <laughs> yes you know and i become a really bad patient and i you know i don't want to interact with people i become real antisocial that has nothing to do with my brain functioning. It has everything to do with my body functioning. Mm. So why do I bring that up? It's because when you put a brain in a box, are you also putting in a substitute for all of that gut interaction? Or mm. do you give the brain in a box a flu once in a while or simulate a flu so that it has a flu personality? Um, and if you don't, mm. they. so one thing I was reading was that, um, uh, what is it, quadru- I'm going to get this wrong, quadriplegics, where they can't feel the lower half of their body, mm-hmm. uh, they, 
they mentioned that their emotions before the accident and after the accident are different and that they feel like they, they feel like their emotions are subdued after the accident. Interesting. And it's probably, and there's an expectation that there might be a, a brain gut uh, connection. Some sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, yeah, I've, I've, I've played with the idea of writing a story about brain in a box with the idea that you lose, um, you know, you lose that emotion. Uh, mm. And how would that, you know, would people do that? And how does that affect, um, well, yeah, one thing I've been thinking about is if you put a brain in a box, can it take communion? Uh, in the religious sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, and does is is that even something that it would um, that it would relate to, you know? When, when I mean, I'm I'm touching on a deep one here because for some people religion is a really really highly emotional thing, yeah. Um, and it's a very if you think about communion, it's a very physical thing. You know, you right. are talking about the body and the blood and wine and cheese and crackers and eating <laughs> things and, you know, the taste of it. And there's all this. Don't sensory. get us into too much trouble, Mark. Well, yeah, no, no. Okay. <laughs> but, but all right, without going any further, you understand where we're going here. Um, but no, you're right. I, I mean, uh, we are spiritual animals uh, and, uh, and there's a physical component as much as there is a, a, a spiritual and mental an emotional component. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's a, it really is a fascinating question. I'm not sure what, if I, if I could even speculate on that, but if you did, I'd read the story. (laughs) Something to do in my free time. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Hey, Mark, this is a good, this is a good time to wrap it up. Thank you so much for your time. Brian, thanks. This is really, um, really enjoyable. And I really appreciate, um, you know, swapping ideas like this. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, maybe we'll have you back sometime. We'll find out if there's like a hundredth anniversary of like the word computer or something. That's great. I'll let you know if I have any more implants put in. (laughs) Okay, great. Bye, Mark. (laughs) All right, Brian. Bye-bye. Completely independently, one of the contributors to EE Times noticed the anniversary of the word robot too. We recently published an article from the irrepressible David Benjamin that celebrates cinema robots, or as they've been alternatively known since 1977, droids. It's called RoboStars, the three greatest droids of all time. In it, Benji establishes a droid hall of fame, and he's taking nominations for candidates. The Hall of Fame is entirely fictional too, but don't let that stop you. As you might expect, there's a link to Benji's story on this podcast episode's webpage. And are you ready for our semi-regular trip down memory lane? Just about every week, we celebrate the anniversaries of great moments in technology history. Today, we're actually sticking with a theme. We're going to set our Wayback Machine to October 26, 1984, the premiere of the film The Terminator, starring a guy who, at the time, nobody, but nobody, would have guessed would one day become governor of California. 
In the film, a defense system with artificial intelligence called Skynet sets off a nuclear war, killing most of humanity. Years hence, Skynet's forces would be defeated by a guy named John Connor. So Skynet sends a killer robot, the Terminator, back in time to kill John Connor's mother, Sarah. The film remains one of the earliest, most enduringly popular warnings about AI, so much so that Mark and I could toss off Skynet as a reference in our conversation earlier and expect most listeners to just get it. In my interviews with people in the electronics industry over the years, it seems to me that Skynet is now just as much of a touchstone as Asimov's Three Laws of Robotics. There were five subsequent Terminator movies. The last one, Dark Fate, released in 2019, was a disappointment at the box office. But me? I consider it much better than most of the other sequels, and it is definitely worth renting. In 2008, the Library of Congress selected the original movie for official preservation. And that is it for the weekly briefing for the week ending October 23rd. Thank you for listening. The Weekly Briefing is available on iTunes, Android, Stitcher, and Spotify. But if you get to us via our website at www.eetimes.com podcasts, you'll find a transcript along with links to the stories we mentioned. This podcast is produced by Aspen Core Studio. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McCray at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. I'm Brian Santo. See you next week. Hasta la vista, baby.